Welcome in. We're glad you're joining us for the latest edition of the Delaware Bible Cast, a podcast ministry from Delaware Bible Church. My name is Brad Harris. I am blessed to serve as pastor of administration and outreach here at Delaware Bible Church, and I'm blessed to serve as your podcast host and to be the one to continue our series today on modern cults and world religions. Today is going to be the first of three podcasts that focuses on Catholicism. Now, as we look at these uh, different topics of Catholicism that we're going to be studying here together, this week we're going to be doing an overview of Catholicism. We're going to be focusing on some of the main points of doctrine, on just some pop culture things and different things that we see within Catholicism, on uh, how Protestants and, and Catholics differ, and I'm going to share some interesting facts with you about them as well. In next week's podcast, we're going to be focusing our time looking very specifically at the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. This is going to share with us many of the doctrinal differences that we as Protestants would have with Catholics. And then finally, we're going to be focusing on how we can share our faith specifically with a Catholic person. Now, I will share from the outset that Catholicism is a very large religion. It can be often complicated. In fact, I think of all of the uh, cults and world religions that we will study during our time together, it's the one with the most that we're going to have to unpack. And I want to first begin by unpacking a statement that I get asked from time to time, or I should say a question that I get asked from time to time, and that is this, do you really view Catholicism as a cult? And the answer to that is that I do. I believe that the Catholic Church can be considered a cult because I believe they preach and teach a false gospel. I do believe, however, though, that there are some members of the Catholic Church who are genuine born-again believers. I don't believe that all of them are, but I believe that some are. And yet I believe that those believers are attending a church and participating in elements of a church service that are in error. They do not align with the truth of God's word. And so, that being said, I believe I've shared previously, and if I haven't, please hear me say now, and I will try to continue to encourage you, to be careful in calling things cults to people that may be following that religion. It can be something that we believe is true, but can be a very abrasive term. I'll give you an illustration of that. A high school friend of mine, uh, really the one friend that I really stayed in touch with after high school, uh, I'm from Marietta, Ohio, and he moved to the Columbus area several years back. Now, me being here in Delaware, it provided an opportunity for me to reconnect with him, and we got together from time to time, and I enjoyed the times that we were able to do that. But several years ago, uh, this friend told me that he was coming up to Delaware, and he wanted to see me, and he wanted to introduce me to this girl that he had been dating. Now, this friend of mine was not a believer. Uh, He briefly, I think, attended a church that really was more of a social gospel church than a gospel preaching church that uh, I would attend back in middle school, high school days when I got to know him. And the girl that he was dating was, in his words, Catholic, but he shared with me that really there was no regularity other than Easter and Christmas to her attending uh, Catholic mass services. But that being said, he he wanted me to meet this friend, and so he and I got together, and then after she got off work, we got together with her, and we went to one of Delaware's finest restaurants, the Hamburger Inn. That's where they wanted to go. And so if you've ever been to the Hamburger Inn, uh, basically you're all seated facing the same way on one of the bar stools there. And so we sat there and we ate dinner together, and as we did, I just got to know this a uh, girlfriend that was dating my friend, got to know her and, and talked to her, and I told her that I worked at Delaware Bible Church, told her a little bit about myself, and um, I knew where she was at religiously, but I just believe I asked her to share you know, a little bit about her story and about her faith, and she shared with me that she was Catholic. 
But then she shared with me a phrase that I didn't know that she knew. And that was something that I had said probably about 10 years earlier to my friend who was dating this girl. And at the time, I was in Bible college and I was studying modern cults and world religions. And I said to my friend, after coming home, after studying these things and being very zealous and you know, wanting to save the world on my own, I said that the Catholic Church is the biggest cult in America. Now, he remembered this all these years later and shared it with that girl. And that girl said to me, don't worry. I know that you think the Catholic Church is the biggest cult in America. Now, that's something I look back at now and I laugh at. But at the time, I was stunned. And I'm sure when she heard that from my friend, she was probably very offended by it. And so, being zealous at the time that I said that, I probably said something I shouldn't have. And that made waves later on. Now, to put a pin on that story, I will tell you that later on that uh, the Lord opened up the opportunity for me to be able to officiate their wedding. And I was able to do so in a way that uh, consciously, I believe, God was honored in and that I was able to do and hold to my theology. And we were able to do so in such a way that had certain things that um, were were desired for her family and for her Catholic Church, but it was very much a Christian wedding where two who I believe to be unbelievers got together in in marriage, and they um, were married there, and I was able to lead that service and give a clear uh, gospel witness to them, both at the service and at our time of premarital counseling. And it's an opportunity that I'm thankful that the Lord opened the door for me able to be to be able to do as I hold the what many of our pastors here on staff hold to, which is I'll marry two unbelievers, I'll marry two believers. I will not lead the wedding for a believer and an unbeliever. But I was able to lead this wedding. I'm thankful for the opportunity that I had to do so. And with that, I was able to, through that, uh, lead in sessions of premarital counseling, which is a requirement regardless of if it's two believers or unbelievers, in leading a wedding for that. <clears throat> so saying those things, we do need to be careful, but we also need to, as we consider if something is a cult, look at the history of that religion. And when we look at church history, we see that Catholicism stemmed from the original Christian church, but doctrines were continued to be added during that time. Doctrines such as partaking in indulgences to try to blot one's sins out and get them into heaven. Doctrines that we would disagree with, that we will study and look at, and unfortunately, during our overview time here, I don't really have much time to be able to look at specifically the history of the church and the history of Catholicism and the Protestant Reformation. What I will encourage you to do, though, is to go to DelawareBible.org and to look for the Delaware Bible Institute class, Modern Cults and World Religions. If you're listening to this podcast, within a few months of it releasing, that's likely going to be under current classes. If not, it'll be below that in previous classes. There I have several videos in church history and of the Catholic Church that I would encourage you to check out. But when we look at church history, we see that through the Reformation, as Martin Luther began the process of breaking away from the Catholic Church, we see then that there was a a decision that was made based on the doctrine of the church to separate. And Martin Luther separated because he believed in Scripture alone. Now, this was contrary to what the Catholic Church was teaching, and today they hold not only Scripture, but the teachings of the church, they call that the magisterium, and the traditions of the church to all be on the same playing field. So they then hold to the fact that it's not just the Bible alone, but it's those teachers and it's those traditions that are held on the same playing field. So, because of that, Martin Luther protested. He wrote the 95 Theses. 
He nailed it to the door. And in response to that was the Council of Trent, where the Catholic Church put 100 anathemas, 100 curses then, on the Protestants and those who are separating from them. And they held to the doctrinal beliefs that I just shared there that they hold to today. It was there between 1545 and 1563, over 18 years, that the Catholic Church officially stated its beliefs regarding authority in the scriptures. Now, as we look at specific statistics regarding Christianity in the Catholic Church, Catholicism, although we believe it to be a false gospel preaching religion, is a religion that is considered in the general sphere to be within Christianity because they hold to Jesus Christ being the Son of God. Christianity is the largest religion in the world with over 2 billion adherents. The largest organized branch of Christianity by far is the Catholic Church. On December 31, 2020, the Catholic world population totaled 1,359,612,000 people. With that, Catholicism is in the largest denomination, not only overall in Christianity, but simply here within the U.S., As in 2021, Pew Research found that 21% of U.S. adults considered themselves to be Catholic, totaling 72 million people. Now, for perspective, the largest denomination that we would probably take part in would be the Southern Baptist Church. The Southern Baptist Church had a membership of 13.7 million people in 2021. So the Catholic Church stands in great numbers compared to any denomination that we would hold to. Interestingly with that, the Catholic Church is a religion where many young people are introduced to and where they have a good portion, actually higher than the non-denominational evangelical faith that we would hold to, holding about 25% of their membership being 18 to 35 years of age. For perspective with that, we're in around the 20% range. And the thing is, there's about five different groups that you could peg us in as non-denominational Protestant evangelicals. That being said, Catholicism has experienced a greater net loss due to religious switching than any other religious tradition in the U.S. Pew Research said that overall, 13% of all U.S. adults are former Catholics, people who say they were raised in the faith but now identify as religious, quote, nuns, as Protestants or with another religion. By contrast, 2% of U.S. adults are converts to Catholicism, people who now identify as Catholic, after having been raised in another religion or no religion. This means that there are 6.5 former Catholics in the U.S. for every convert to the faith. No other religious group analyzed in the 2014 religious landscape has experienced anything close to this ratio of losses to gains via religious switching. So why is the Catholic Church experiencing such a great net loss? We'll talk about that as we go, and I think as we study and understand their doctrine, It may help us to see that. But some interesting related information from Gallup says this, that most most Americans identify with a religion. According to an average of all 2021 Gallup polling, about three in four Americans said that they identify with a specific religious faith. By far the largest proportion, 69%, identify with a Christian religion, including 35 who are Protestant, 22% Catholic, and 12% who identify with another Christian religion, or simply as, quote, Christian. 7% identify with a non-Christian religion, including 2% who are Jewish, 1% Muslim, and 1% Buddhist, among others. 21% of Americans said that they have no religious preference, and 3% did not answer the question. They continue on. 
The long-term decline in church attendance is linked to a drop in religious identification in general, particularly for Protestant religions, but also to decreasing weekly attendance among U.S. Catholics. When describing their behavior more generally, 22% of Americans report that they attend religious services, quote, every week, with another 9% saying they do so, quote, almost every week, and 11% saying they attend about once a month. That leaves the majority saying they seldom, 25%, or never, 31%, attend religious services. Gallup trends on this measure of church attendance date back to only 1992, at which time 34% of U.S. adults said they attended church every week. So from 1992 to today, we're saying that 22% of Americans report that they attend religious services every week. I actually think that number is high. Now that being said, of the 69% who say that they identify with the Christian religion, 31% of those say that they never attend church, and 25% of those say that they seldom attend church. We'll put those in the going to Christmas and Easter service people. With that, then, we have a great problem that we're facing, and I would say of the religions that face the attendance issue, Catholicism is right at the top of the list. In fact, with Catholicism, we often see folks that are regular church-going Catholics refer to themselves as staunch Catholics, or they are regularly practicing, where others will just identify themselves as Catholic. So that's some of the lingo that you hear within the Catholic Church. Now, when it comes to financial information, The Catholic Church is known to have at least $73 billion in assets. Marketplace.org says, quote, The church has vast assets, including billions in real estate and some priceless art, not to mention the Vatican Bank. But its finances are largely secret. Tallying that immense wealth is pretty much impossible, according to experts. Now, with that, the Catholic Church is one where, although we can't fully figure out where they're at financially, we know that they hold property across the globe with nearly 277,000 square miles, which is about the size of Texas in their property portfolio. This includes embassies, churches, cathedrals, monastery schools, and convents, which is housing for nuns, as Jared Posner says. The Catholic Church's financial portfolio includes 5,000 hospitals, 10,000 orphanages, 95,000 elementary schools, and 47,000 secondary schools. They remain the largest non-government healthcare and education provider in the world, according to Catholicism Worldwide in the World Christian Encyclopedia. Just here in the state of Ohio, the Ohio Catholic Conference shared that in 2019, while the total Ohio population was 11,666,281 people, there was just over 1.8 million Catholics, over 1,000 priests, over 2,230 nuns, And with that, they had a total of 762 parishes, a total of 36 hospital hospital facilities. They had assisted over 5 million people through their health care systems, 66 social service agencies, 884,406 people assisted by their social services, 190 cemeteries, 14 colleges or universities, 374 Catholic K-12 schools, and 111,984 students in K-12 schools. All that to say, Catholicism has a major reach here in the state of Ohio and within the United States. Now, the history of the Catholic Church in the U.S. dates back to the 16th and 17th centuries, following the arrival of Spanish and French missionaries. 
A number of missions were established by the Spanish in what is now present-day western region of the U.S. New Orleans was the most important colony to the French. However, it was not until the 19th century when the population of Catholics in the U.S. started growing rapidly, mainly due to immigration. And so we see that Catholicism came to the U.S. mainly through immigration. Where I'm reading from is from worldatlas.com, an article there regarding Catholics. And it continues on to say that the acquisition of the prior possessions of Mexico, France, and Spain that were predominantly Catholic also played a major role in the increasing number of Catholics in the U.S. Following the acquisition, there was a rapid influx of immigrants from Europe, such as Polish, Germans, Irish, and Italians. And as a result, the Catholic Church became the largest Christian denomination in the U.S. Catholicism has been a religion that has largely come to the U.S. through immigration. The largest Catholic nation today is that of Brazil. Now, when we think of Catholicism and pop culture today, there are many celebrities and cultural icons who grew up Catholic, yet no longer practice the faith. Some of those would include Leonardo DiCaprio, George Clooney, Lady Gaga, Anne Hathaway, Jim Carrey, Jimmy Fallon, and many others. We could also think of many political figures who say they are Catholic. The biggest ones that you would probably think of today would be Joe Biden or Nancy Pelosi. Yet there's also many others, such as Paul Ryan, John Boehner, several Supreme Court justices such as John Roberts, Samuel Alito, Anthony Kennedy, Antonin Scalia, may he rest in peace, Sonia Sotomayor, Clarence Thomas, others. Yet for our time today, Let's just focus on some fun and sometimes lesser-known Catholic celebrities today. The first one that surprised me as I didn't know she was Catholic is Nicole Kidman. Nicole Kidman is consistently one of the world's highest-paid actresses, and she grew up Catholic. Yet she moved to Scientology for a while after marrying Tom Cruise, but then she returned to her Catholic roots after she and Tom divorced. After we finish up our time here with Catholicism, our next study will be more in Scientology, and so we'll talk more about Tom there. Now, probably the one that you would think of most within pop culture would be Mel Gibson. Mel has been an actor and a director, and he directed the movie The Passion of the Christ. He's working on a follow-up film to that, on The Resurrection, that is set to come out in 2024. A man who is a famous Catholic, I didn't realize that he was Catholic, is Steve Carell. Steve Carell is an actor who's known for many things that he's been in, but some of his most famous roles are in The Office as Michael Scott, in Despicable Me, and in the movie Dan in Real Life. But there's many others that you could peg him in as well. The one that you've likely heard the most of recently within pop culture is that of Tom Brady, football's goat, the greatest of all time. Now, Tom's dad did say that he could be a better Catholic after he had his first son out of wedlock, but as far as we can tell, he still holds to the religion to this day. Arnold Schwarzenegger, the governator, the former actor and governor of California, is a Catholic that practices to this day. And yet we could also go to many others, such as Pierce Brosnan, who played in 007, Stephen Colbert, Conan O'Brien on late-night television, Alec Baldwin, Catherine Zeta-Jones, director Martin Scorsese, who filmed and directed a great movie called Silence, which is a movie about Catholic missionaries and being persecuted for their faith. That is an incredibly difficult watch, but a great one. One that we know well in Columbus, as he has a car dealership, Mark Wahlberg. Kobe Bryant, may he rest in peace. Sylvester Stallone, as well. Frank Sinatra, may he rest in peace, was a Catholic. There are many, many others that we could see within Catholicism, and as I've studied their doctrine, I can just see it throughout pop culture in the different tones and things that you see in movies, different things such as that. But as we look at the Catholic Church, many of the most beautiful churches around the world are Catholic churches. 
Although there are no official numbers, I believe it's undoubtedly true that the Catholic Church spends more money preserving its architecture and history than any other church or organization. In the small town of Marietta that I grew up in, with about 13,000 people, there is a Catholic church named St. Mary's. And I remember being a, I don't remember if it was a middle school or a high school student, but that church did a sanctuary remodel that they spent over $1 million on. And I am sure that much of the money that was spent on that, spent from the trades that they had to have, the men that would do that work of fixing and repairing and working on the architecture, the different elements in the church. And it's truly a beautiful place. It's unlike any other building in the area. But they spend much, large amounts of money in order to get their church to that kind of architecture. Now, for perspective on that, the one that I shared was done in the 90s or early 2000s for a million dollars. And we did our auditorium remodel for around $150,000, just for some perspective there on the cost of things. And that was within the last five years or so for us. But we can look through many beautiful pieces of Catholic architecture, of Catholic art, and we can appreciate the great beauty of it. The Catholic Church is very much a beautiful religion. In fact, I had a friend previously who lived in Delaware that was previously a Presbyterian. Uh, once I reconnected with them, and we went out to coffee as they had moved out for a while, and <clears throat> as we reconnected, they shared with me that they had become Catholic. And I asked them why they did that, as the doctrine that they were sharing there was much different from the Presbyterian doctrine that they grew up with. And they said, because they fell in love with the beauty of the church. And we can look at places such as Vatican City, the smallest city in the world, and see the great beauty of the church. And one of the things that we can most appreciate about the Catholic faith is that beauty. And they see that God is a God of beauty, and that he has given us creativity in a way to honor him with art, with architecture, and with many different things. As well, we can appreciate that the Catholic Church is the largest charitable organization in the world and has given more to pro-life organizations and moral Christian causes than any other group by a wide margin. Finally, we can admire the fact that many who practice their Catholic faith are incredibly sincere in their beliefs and they stridently hold to the values of the Church. Yet we would believe that they are in error in several areas. And so we're going to talk about some of those areas that we find different. But first, I want to talk about some of the areas that Catholics and Protestants share in common when it comes to doctrine. There are many areas that we both agree upon. First of all, we affirm the Trinity, that the Trinity of God the Father, God the Son, of the Holy Spirit, the three in one, are true, and God's Word affirms that. We affirm God's perfect nature and holiness. We affirm Jesus' full humanity and his deity, that he was both fully man and fully God, and we affirm the same beliefs on his death, burial, and resurrection. Along with that, we affirm the preservation and sanctity of life, and we have strong moral codes and believe in the Ten Commandments, as well as the earth and all else being created and sustained by God. So there are many areas that we can hold to and say with a Catholic person, I agree with you in these areas. Yet there are several areas where we differ, and we'll spend most of the rest of our time looking at these areas. The first of which is the church, and that Catholics believe that the Roman Catholic Church is the one true church. Many of the things that I share from the Catholic faith are going to be shared from their catechism, the catechism of the Catholic Church. And as well, I'll be sharing some different articles. One is from the North American Mission Board, which shares uh, an apologetics view on Catholicism. I'll be sharing a lot with that next week, but a little bit today. And also from some uh, lectures that were done 
by Dr. Mark Sidwell and Mr. Roger Eves, two of my professors at Bob Jones University, who gave me some material and continuing to quote throughout for different material. But the, Catholic, the Catechism of the Catholic Church professes the Church to be the sole Church of Christ, and it is defined as one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Now, when it comes to authority, Catholics believe in what we call apostolic successionism, and that they believe that after Peter's death, the Pope has continued to fill the office of being an apostle until today. Now, they have a hierarchical form of church government. We'll talk about that a little bit more here in a bit. But in some of their articles, they say this, that the Council of Nicaea, A.D. 325, originally formulated this teaching and ratified the Nicene Creed. The church teaches that only the Catholic Church was founded by Jesus Christ, who appointed twelve apostles to continue his work as the church's earliest bishops. Catholic belief holds that the church, quote, is the continuing presence of Jesus on earth, end quote and that all duly consecrated bishops have a lineal succession from the apostles. In particular, the bishop of Rome, the pope, is considered the successor to the apostle Simon Peter, from whom the pope derives his supremacy over the church. Now when it comes to that hierarchy then, imagine, if you would, a pyramid. And in that pyramid, in fact, uh, I have one from edrawmax.com that is in the PowerPoint slides there at DelawareBible.org. And there you will see a hierarchy of the church. At the bottom of that is the laity or the people. Now, the members of the church, they say that they belong to the same religion and reap the same benefits through, live, through a life of faith and devotion, as do members of the clergy. Now, in a Catholic church, it's, different, it's much different than a church like Delaware Bible where we vote on certain things or you have certain rights as members. You see much less of that in the Catholic church. And that's because with the system of hierarchy there, the leadership are often handling things. So above the laity are the deacons of the church, and we'll talk about each of these positions more in depth next week. But the deacons are the ordained ministers of the Catholic Church who serve. Over them are the priests, men who are baptized and have received the sacrament of holy orders. Over them are the bishops, or the ministers who hold the full sacrament and who are overseeing the priests and the churches there within that region. Overseeing the larger areas there are the archbishops, and they oversee large areas of churches called the archdiocese. So there's the diocese, the church. There is the archdiocese, the group of churches. And over the archbishops then are the cardinals. They lead the bishops and members of the college of cardinals. And often if you see them in their robes, they're the ones wearing red. The leader of the church is the pope. And again, they say that he has descended from Peter. Now, as you can imagine... We live in the Columbus Diocese, but there are, within the state of Ohio, six regions, six different dioceses. The Toledo Diocese, the Cleveland Diocese, the Youngstown Diocese, the Cincinnati Diocese, the Steubenville Diocese, and the Columbus Diocese. The largest amount of these churches for Catholic churches in the Archdiocese area would be in Cincinnati, Ohio which has a, the largest Catholic population. With that, NewAdvent.org says this, that the diocese is the territorial circumspection administered by a bishop. The archdiocese is placed under the jurisdiction of an archbishop. Considered as a territorial circumspection, no difference exists between them. The power of their pastors alone is different. So Catholic churches hold then to a different leadership structure, and similarly they hold to a different authority structure and where they get their authority. We hold to one form of authority as Protestants. That's the Word of God. Catholics hold to three, the Bible, the traditions of the church, 
and the teaching ministry, the magisterium of the church. When it comes to the Bible, Catholics affirm the 66 books of the Protestant Bible, but they also add several apocryphal books. So what's the apocrypha? Well, I want to share a piece from an article from Faith Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary on this. This is from their website, and it's titled, Why We Reject the Apocrypha. And the question that is asked is, why don't we accept the apocryphal books? It shares with us, even though the Septuagint existed in New Testament times and was available to the New Testament writers, the book of Hebrews quotes from the Septuagint, there is no direct quotations from the Apocrypha in the New Testament, nor does the New Testament refer to any Apocryphal books as part of Scripture. No general church council in the first four centuries of Christian history endorsed Apocryphal books. While some early Christians thought highly of these books, others, such as Anathesis, Cyril of Jerusalem, Origen, and Jerome, opposed them. Number three, while Augustine accepted the Apocrypha, he is not exactly the same as that is what is found in the Catholic Bible. Furthermore, Augustine seems to have changed his mind from accepting the Septuagint as an authoritative to later recognizing that only the Hebrew Scriptures were inspired. Number four, even the Roman Catholic Church did not originally, officially recognize the Apocrypha as belonging in the Bible until the Council of Trent, as we talked about. This was Catholicism's response to the Reformation. Number five, the Apocrypha appeared in Protestant Bibles even before the Council of Trent and on the 19th century, but were placed in a section separate from the Old and New Testaments. Number six, some teachings found in the Apocrypha appear to be unbiblical and even heretical, such as praying for the dead in 2 Maccabees 12, 45-46, and salvation by works, Tobit 12.9. The New Testament teaches that after death comes the judgment, Hebrews 9.27, and that salvation is by grace, not by works, Ephesians 2.8 and 9. Finally, some stories in the Apocrypha seem fanciful or even unethical. For example, Judith asked God to help her in a falsehood in Judith 9, 10-13. So, we as well do not hold these books to be inspired. Yet, the Catechism of the Catholic Church says this, in number 78, that this living transmission accomplished in the Holy Spirit is called tradition since it is distinct from sacred scripture though closely connected to it. So not only do they hold to scripture and the apocryphal books, but also tradition to be distinct but closely connected by God's word. Continuing on in their catechism, they say in number 80 that sacred tradition and sacred scripture then are bound closely together and communicate one with the other. So how do we know scripture? We know tradition. For both of them, flowing out of the same divine wellspring, come together in some fashion to form one thing and move towards the same goal. Each of them makes present and fruitful in the church the mystery of Christ, who promised to remain with his own always to the close of the age. With that, there are two distinct modes of transmission. Catechism 81, sacred scripture is the speech of God as it, is, as it put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit. Quote, and holy tradition transmits in its entirety the word of God, which has been entrusted to the apostles by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit. It transmits it to the successors of the apostles, so that enlightened by the spirit of truth, they may faithfully preserve, expound, and spread it abroad by their preaching. Finally, Catechism 82, as a result, the church, to whom the transmission of inspiration of revelation is entrusted, quote, does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scripture alone. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiment of devotion 
and reverence. Again, they say that interpretation of revelation and trusted doesn't derive her certainty about all revealed truths from Scripture alone, but Scripture and tradition are accepted and honored with equal sentiments. Right there, we can see that they hold to Scripture and the traditions of the church, and as we will see, the teachings of the church, all on the same level. Now, moving then to the magisterium, the teaching ministry of the church. That North American Mission Board, NAMB, apologetics article, titled Roman Catholicism Overview, says this, that Catholics believe that their bishops, in communion with the Pope, have been given the task of authentically interpreting both the Bible and tradition. This task, quote, has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the church alone in Catechism number 85. According to the Catechism of the, Eighth of the Catholic Church, the faithful receive with docity the teaching and directives that their pastors give them in different forms. Catechism number 87. The teaching ministry of the church, magisterium, is also considered equal in authority to the Bible and tradition. According to Catholicism, the Bible, sacred tradition, and the teaching authority of the church, quote, are so connected and associated that one of them cannot stand without the others. That's Catechism number 95. Now, again, we are throwing a lot out in this podcast. And as we move to the seven sacraments next week, I hope this doesn't scare you, but there's even more there that we're going to be looking at. And as I was studying and preparing both for the Sunday school class where I go over this and this podcast, it just took me a while, not only to just figure out all the Sunday school material to go through this, but how am I going to condense this into podcast form? And that's because, again, that this religion is one where there is so much there for us to look at and overview to truly understand it. And it's complicated. And the reason why I would say it's so complicated is because there are so many extra-biblical things being added that aren't originally in God's Word. Let's then move to what they say about Mary, as we believe that they say many things about Mary that we don't find in God's Word. Now, Catechism number 508 says this, quote, From among the descendants of Eve, God chose the Virgin Mary to be the mother of his Son. Full of grace, Mary is the most excellent fruit of redemption. Get this next part. From the first instant of her conception, she was totally preserved from the stain of original sin, and she remained pure from all personal sin throughout her life. Catechism 508 says that Mary was preserved without original sin. So she is a deity then. Mary is holy. It says in Catechism 975, quote, We believe that the Holy Mother of God, the new Eve, Mother of the Church, continues in heaven to exercise her maternal role on behalf of the members of Christ. Mary is sinless. Mary is perfect. Mary is now in heaven. And she is a deity. She is a goddess, we would say, within their religion. Now, again, I'm quoting strictly from their catechisms there. That one was 975. And with that, according to Pope Paul, the church's devotion to the Blessed Virgin is intrinsic to Christian worship. They believe that Mary is a person who is intrinsic with worship. Now, again, that's Pope Paul, and that's Pope Paul VI, to be clear. But one thing that I think that we struggle with as Protestants, and knowing that this is what the Catholic Church says about Mary, we often view Mary almost in too low of a light, as Mary was the woman that God chose, out of all the women who have ever lived and will ever live, to bear his son. And Mary was a virgin as she did so. And as we see Mary's example in the Bible, she did so praising the Lord. And Mary is a woman worthy of emulation. She is a great example, but she is not a God. 
In fact, Catechism 966 further proves that they believe that she is a goddess. As it says, at the end of Mary's life, she was taken up into heaven to be the queen over all things. Quote, Finally, the Immaculate Virgin, preserved free from all stain of original sin, when the course of her earthly life was finished, was taken up body and soul into heavenly glory, and exalted by the Lord as queen over all things, so that she might be the more fully conformed to her Son, the Lord of lords and conqueror of sin and death. In the Catholic Church, Mary is given a, a position that we would differ from them on and that we would say is unbiblical. In future weeks, we'll talk more about that. But just to close our podcast, I do want to share a couple interesting notes with you on Catholicism and some of their culture. In many Catholic churches, the, pul- the pulpit is placed on one side of the auditorium. The communion table generally sits in the middle, and the pulpit location is different from what we see in most Protestant churches, where the pulpit is often, most of the time, placed in the center to signify the centrality of the preaching of the Bible in the church. So Catholics, again, holding these three things to be together, they have a different view on their architecture than we would. And I would say that the center pulpit there is a Protestant, evangelical Christian thing that we often see. Some Catholic churches hold services literally every single day. Here in Delaware, St. Mary's Catholic Church holds the following service times per their website. They hold services on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. On Tuesday and Thursday, they're at 5.30 p.m. On Wednesday and Friday, they're at 9 a.m., and they stream those as well. I'm assuming for people who are working and can't join them. On uh, Saturday, they have a 4.30 p.m. service. On Sunday, they have a 9 a.m. and 11.30 a.m. Mass. And at 2 p.m., they have a Spanish Mass. As I was sharing this information in Sunday school class, a former Catholic who was in there shared that really the times that matter for Catholics in order for their Mass it's 4.30 p.m. on Saturday and 9 or 11.30 on Sunday. I would assume that the 2 p.m. Spanish Mass would be considered with that, but that's the one that they are assumed that they really need to be at. Now, we find ourselves now in, a, in the season of Lent, which is, is a season of denial, of no, or of saying no to certain things, of making sacrifices as Jesus did. And through that time, Catholics often hold fundraisers to help with their missions. During this season, we often see fish fries. We also see different bake sales or different carnivals throughout the year that Catholics do in order to raise money. The largest Catholic event in Delaware is at St. Mary's Parish. The goal, they say, quote, that the goal of the festival is to provide a rewarding experience for all who attend or participate. This is the largest single event fundraiser for St. Mary Parish, and funds are generated by the festival that are generated by the festival help support the community with donations to Habitat for Humanity and others. Proceeds have, benef- have benefited both church and school by providing funds for playground equipment and emergency repairs to the church and parish facilities. Per their website, St. Mary Parish Festival includes carnival rides and inflatables, a casino, catered food and drink, a raffle and silent auction, sponsorships, a bake sale, as well as church tours and parish information. I remember when I first saw St. Mary's uh, having this event in town, I remember being downtown and seeing, uh, I believe part of the road was blocked off and they had all these huge carnival rides and things and I wondered what was going on. And then I walked through and saw this event and just the scale of it. It was unlike any event that we've ever had here at church and just was a a crazy large event. One other interesting note to share is that many Catholics want to strongly support one another in business, so much so that they sell advertising in their weekly bulletins. They will have in that advertising that they are a parishioner there. 
Yet it also can be found as well on that, that it looks like outsiders can purchase advertising as well. Interestingly, I saw some businesses that we have uh, doing business with us at Delaware Bible Church, some custodial businesses, and some different ones who have had association with our church at well that likely know that there are customers there that they want to reach, and so they purchase advertising. Some believe that that advertising is used just to basically take care of the large bulletin that Catholics have. But as well, I think that you could say that uh, with that, the money for that can often go to other things as well. And so again, this is a very large study. It's a very complex study. And as we work through it, if you have questions, if you have things that you would like me to address in the following podcast, I'd encourage you to contact me on that. This is one that I want to take our time and go through and work through carefully, but also it's one that I hope that you find helpful. And I want to give some specific time to focus again on sharing the gospel with these people, making sure that they know that their eternal destiny is secure in Christ alone and not by any other teachings or traditions of the church. We'll focus more on those teachings and traditions next week. And as you study, as you work through these things, I hope that the Lord is using it in a mighty way to draw you to his word and through true Christian faith through the scripture alone. God bless you. Thank you for joining us. Hope that you have a wonderful week. And I look forward to sharing more with you next week. We'll see you then.